Hey folks, it's Frank, not Jeff. This week, I'm very excited to introduce you to Katie McLaughlin. Now, Katie has a very unique approach to training. She's seen a lot of toxic and inappropriate things happen when she's worked in the corporate world, and she's taken her drama and acting background and infused it into a very unique approach to building empathy and emotional intelligence within leaders. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to Love as a Business Strategy, a podcast that brings humanity to the workplace. We're here to talk about business, but we want to tackle topics that most business leaders shy away from. We believe that humanity and love should be at the center of every successful business, and we're here to have conversations and hear stories about how real people and real businesses operate. I'm your host, Jeff Ma. Just kidding. I'm Frank Dana, and my co-host today is the one and only Maggie McClurkin. Hello, Maggie. How are you today? Hello, doing well. How are you, Frank? Thank you. I'm doing great. I'm glad we had that <laughs> friendly banter. That was excellent. Let's continue. So I'm excited to to talk with our guest today uh, alongside of Maggie. And much like us, Katie McLaughlin is a passionate about creating a better world through happier workplaces and teams, which we can all get behind. But she comes at it from a completely different and totally unique angle. So we had to have her on this podcast. Katie, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm so excited to be here. Amazing. So rather than relying on traditional training and coaching, uh, Katie has created something called the McLaughlin Method to put an end to boring training. I'm excited to dive into everything. Welcome to the show. But before we get started, uh, we typically have an icebreaker uh, question. And this time I'm going to change it up a little bit. So Maggie doesn't know the icebreaker, but I do. And here it is. In the past week, what has been your favorite meal? You're asking me? Seven days. Seven days. Let's start with Katie. Okay. I'm going to give you some time, Maggie. So I would have to say that the past seven days, uh, my partner made us a Valentine's Day meal, cooked mm. uh, lamb steaks, roasted Ooh. Brussels sprouts, roasted oh. asparagus, some roasted sweet potato. It was delicious. This sounds amazing. What what we'll type of you over. Thank you so much. That'd be fantastic. I'd love to do it. I'm, I'm serious. Where do you live? Uh, what area? What region? <laughs> Seattle. Oh, good. Okay, Seattle. Great. Now we can talk addresses later. Uh, Maggie, yeah. <laughs> Maggie, you're like this is an odd start to this conversation. Maggie, what about you? Um. So I went to this restaurant that's not super new, but new to me called Rosie Cannonball in Houston and I mm. had this pasta dish um, that they set on fire on side mm. on the side of your table because it's mm. got like vodka in it is one of the panella vodka and oh, yeah. they yeah. pour vodka on it and then set it on fire and it it was it was so good <laughs> that's amazing this yeah. is they haven't had lunch yet so this is really really good Katie I, I want to start with you because I want to I want to start at the before we get to your method, I want to talk about why the method was created in the first place. So can you give us a little backstory as to what was the impetus for moving in this direction? And then we can start getting into the the unique approach that you take. Yeah. So before I was a business owner, I was an employee like many of us and you know working in businesses. And I I got my career start in nonprofits and I'm an artist. I'm a theater artist, a dancer, 
general creative. And, you know, so for me, I'm always very driven by passion, by meaning. And when I transferred into the for-profit world uh, from, you know, nonprofits where you're really focused on all that meaning and purpose, I had to try to figure out where is that for me in the workplace. And I realized that part of that could be through my the career that I kind of created for myself um, in learning and development and coaching uh, leaders and individuals on, you know, performing to their best. Um, and so that was great. But I also realized that I wanted to work with companies that were trying to be intentional about the culture they were creating. They really cared about their people. And so I was really gravitating towards like the startup and tech field because that's kind of a big selling point for a lot of startup and tech companies. And what I found was that they weren't always, like they were saying the right things, but their actions didn't always follow through. That there were leaders who could be the most inspiring, uh, have the best ideas, but then they could also be kind of tearing you down in different conversations. And it was like their attempt to try to motivate you to Mm -hmm. do better. But in reality, you just felt like crap. Uh, So I dealt with a number of these leaders. I worked at a number of different companies and found that it was kind of all the same and realized we're kind of missing something here in terms of what we know we need to do for as a leader and how to relate to people in the workplace and the actual follow through. Like we're kind of just not treating people like humans a lot of the time. So that was really my, my impetus was like, we need to do something different. So Katie, why do you think that is? Why do you think that there is that gap between it's maybe we could call it a self-awareness gap, but also we could talk about why do you think there's a gap between the intentions people have and the behaviors that come out as a result of those intentions? I think the biggest piece is around whether we've had any training or coaching that is different than that. Um, okay. So most of our training as leaders actually doesn't happen or happens by what's been modeled for us. And so when we're responding or like kind of learning through experience, learning through seeing other leaders and how they treat us, how they treat other people that report to them, other people in the company, that's what sticks. So we say, oh, Mm. well, this person's still the CEO of this company and they act like this. They have all this power. So why wouldn't I emulate that behavior? Because that's got somehow got them the result of being in power and having, you know, all this control and money. And so unfortunately, by having a lot of bad actors as role models, that then has trickled down into, you know, any any of us who are, haven't had any actual training in leadership or communication or empathy. Now we have to kind of either build that skill set by ourselves or just emulate what we're seeing around us. Have you noticed any situations where leaders have seen the need to break out of that cycle of bad behavior, of misbehavior, trying to get to the place of power? And that backfiring on them because the culture of the organization wasn't prepared for that or didn't jive with that. What are some of those examples that you've seen of of leaders kind of waking up to that realization and trying to make a positive impact and maybe failing or making a positive impact and changing the, the landscape? I'd say that most of my experiences have been the 
unsuccessful versions where right. you know many leaders have have realized hey wait a minute this isn't how how we, what i kind of signed up for right yeah. um and they kind of realized that the the culture around them is like two-faced and mm. they can either continue to be two-faced because that's kind of what their leader is expecting of them they're still their leader is still kind of pushing and putting pressure on them and so you kind of get stuck i've actually experienced this myself at, as a leader um where i felt sometimes stuck where my leader was expecting my team to perform more and so I had to figure out how to motivate them to perform. And some of these softer strategies around motivation take time to actually like see an increase in productivity. Whereas the, the notion of fear or micromanaging or as a leader, I'll just do it myself, right? That it, it kind of becomes this like weird cycle where, okay, I don't want to micromanage these people. I want to give them the ability to mature and perform and mm. you know mm. change on their own but the work still has to get done because person who pays my paycheck is breathing down my neck so that means right. i take on the burden as a leader wow. and then i burn out and then i leave this is fantastic like i, I so a couple <laughs> thoughts really quickly katie you're That's killing the game. <laughs> absolutely we're in I mean, okay, so the insights are fantastic because I feel like a lot of leaders and, and managers and people that are working for them uh, or under them in any capacity experience this, right? And so what you're talking about, the culture of the environment is nothing more than the behaviors that each of us are willing to tolerate. And so yep. there's a saying by Peter Drucker, right? Culture eats strategy for breakfast. But we, we have a slightly different saying, behaviors eat culture for lunch. Because foundationally, if a behavior is what creates a culture and an environment where people can either thrive or be pushed away from the toxicity, then behaviors become the culture. And as a result of that, that's actually far more important than just focusing on the culture itself, right? Mm -hmm. And so what you're, what you're talking about is this insane long-term impact of toxicity that ultimately gets people nowhere. The outcomes actually aren't as valuable as, they, as, as the leadership thinks they are. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And uh, like, I just kind of got goosebumps while you were describing all of that because I say that in a different, in a slightly different way, where mm. I say that culture is in the in between. We often it is. Think it's like it's like the four. Yeah, well, and we we it's often think that culture is those like big, um, you know, those big moments in, in time where it's like oh, a team meeting or a um, event, like a you know a morale yeah. event that we're doing. Yes. Our actual experience of culture is in all these tiny moments. It's when somebody gives you feedback completely off the cuff and they've had a shitty day and mm -hmm. they, you know, they're yelling mm -hmm. at you, but like that, it's that moment that we say, oh God, that was really toxic. That, that didn't feel good. So now I'm going to go and complain to somebody else. And it's this whole like trickle down effect. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. So when, when we talk about culture, most of the time people think about perks or benefits or extras at work, right? Like, especially from HR and managing and recruiting side, they're like, listen, we have goat yoga. We've got a, a, a cheese bar on Thursdays. Um, it, none of that matters. And, and, and ultimately what ends up happening is people are, as we've experienced and as we've seen, um, sort of like locked in to a relationship with a company because they really need good health insurance, right? Mm -hmm. And they're willing to be subjected to this type of culture or this type of situation, even though in reality, it's, it's, 
you know, they're, they're not actually able to live their full selves or bring their best life to the conversation. So culture is nothing more than how we behave. And like you said, it happens in every interaction and those interactions, they spread and they set the tone for others. So the way we build better behavior or better culture is day by day, action by action. We build those opportunities to either tear, tear each other down or build each other up. Right. And that I'm, we're on the same page here. This is, this is really, really good. And the reason why I brought up the force is because it's, it's real culture is in between all of these things. It is not a big moment. It is, it's all of it. It's kind of meshed in. It's hard to see, but it's very easy to feel. So you going through this experience with your background as a general creative, as someone who's um, an actor, I like to say an actor, you know what I'm saying? I can't do that very well, but I'm trying my best. Um, how did you get the idea for weaving these, this, this sort of mission for making leadership training better and this passion for acting and, and drama? How did those things come together? And what is this method that we've heard about? Yeah, so this came together partially just as a, how am I doing this differently? How am I creating a different sense within my own team, the way that I relate to people uh, mm. and kind of realizing that a lot of the tools that I learned in my actor study um, by doing theater and you know working together as a team and as an ensemble, uh, the nature actually of, a, of an ensemble in the theater is actually a really good model for teamwork, but we don't have that same level of commitment to team like we do in a theater ensemble, where um, you know, in that theater ensemble, you recognize that the whole is more important than the individual parts. Mm. And so all of these kinds of lessons around how do we interact with each, with people and what are the ways that I have learned to relate to each other, to individuals? That's kind of where the kernels of this started. Um, but then, the, so the other piece of this is my use of theater as a way to teach empathy, emotional intelligence, and to break open some areas where we're not really able to communicate because we don't have language or precedent for how we can communicate safely in the workplace mm. about our emotions and about our real experience. So by using theater as my primary vehicle for connecting in workshops and in my programming, it provides us a objective kind of third third party almost uh, version of some of the real world situations that we're experiencing in our day to day. And we can then start to comment and give real feedback about what's actually happening, our reactions to a circumstance based on this, you know, kind of made up scenario or made up um, image. A lot of the work I do is very heavy in using your body to create different images. And that is our source of discussion. Then it's not like, hey, you hurt me the other day when you said such and such. That's not something that any of us feel really comfortable doing. So by using this objective, um, this objective representation really helps people to be able to open up and be honest about what's going on. That's so cool. Um, I'm a former theater kid, so you are uh, speaking my language. Um, I, I'm really interested to know just from a more practical side, like start to finish, like what, what is one of those um, journeys look like? You don't have to like, you don't have to get into too much detail if you don't feel comfortable with like people's details, but 
I would love to just see, hear a story about like what problem you saw, what what you implemented, and then the result at the end. Yeah. So some of my workshops are, um, you know, group workshops with folks that come from all backgrounds. And so we're often looking at a particular theme. Uh, and in one of these workshops, we were looking at, uh, we wanted to try to uncover some more of our biases and assumptions that we make about people in the workplace based off of their gender, their race, um, you know, their age or tenure at the company, any of those kinds of things. And through the course of this workshop, we got to this really beautiful conversation about our expectation of what it means for someone to show up and be engaged or productive in a team meeting. And so the kernel of that conversation was as a small group, they used their bodies, you know, their arms, their facial expressions. This was a um, an in-person example. Um, and they created and or recreated a typical team meeting where each person stepped into to create this image and they held different body positions. You know, some one person was kind of like leaning forward, looked like they might be taking notes. Another person was like relaxed and clearly like on their phone. Um, you know, those kinds of different images that we might expect to see in a team meeting. And where this became powerful was we then started to change out the players. So they kept the same images. We put different people into those different images. And then we asked what story or what um, thoughts come up for you as now that we see this person in, in this position versus another person. And it helped us to like really identify some of those thought patterns around, well, is there a expectation that the woman who is taking notes is actually, um, you know, a secretary? Is there an expectation that when, um, you know, a man is leaning backwards that he actually is engaged versus a woman or, you know, things like that? Um, and so even just having that conversation, having the opportunity to articulate and see some of our uh, biases towards what productivity looks like, what does engagement look like, that there were all these beautiful aha moments on people's faces that they could then take back into their interactions with their team members at their workplaces. So it's basically like forced empathy, like making someone literally sit in someone else's position in a meeting and kind of see, see the situation from their point of view and therefore seeing all of the the biases that they might have sitting on the other side of the table. Yeah, you know, and I like to refer to it like it's like empathy on purpose, right? Like we're we're trying to fast track our empathy skills. And so frequently when we hear us talk about empathy or emotional intelligence in the workplace, a lot of it does relate to um talk of, you know, do you actually relate to this topic that somebody else is experiencing and, you know, can you right. walk in their shoes? But how do you do that, right? And if you haven't ever had that life experience, so it, this gives people an opportunity to step into, feel kind of where tension is in your body, feel where, um, you know, other emotions that might come up for you based on that physical body position. And then you can start to relate and empathize that much faster because you've now had an experience that is similar to theirs. 
this is a little off topic, but I'm wondering if you've watched the show um, Station Eleven I'm on not. HBO Max. Okay, well, you should watch right. it. Um, watch it but it's very good. It's very, um, very artistic in the way that it's portrayed. It's beautiful and it's very deep storytelling, but it's not like a, your run of the mill, like murder happens, we figure out the the culprit. It's, it's, just, it's very like uh, complex, but one of the main themes in it is they are using theater and performing the same play of Hamlet over and over and over again Wow. switching out characters mm. and and switching out even the theme like sometimes they do a, a 90s grunge theme of hamlet or like a very traditional version of hamlet and they they use that in order to kind of understand their own feelings and perspectives of others um it's it's really fascinating and it reminded me of this conversation you so you should you should watch it <laughs> yeah no that sounds awesome. that's amazing yeah, I wrote that down too. Thank you. Um, I was going to ask you, you, you mentioned something about the in-person experience. I'm wondering how has your approach to this type of experience and these types of experiential dramatic kind of um, learning and teaching environments changed virtually? How have you been able to adapt to virtual and what have you seen in terms of nuance or difference there? Yeah, so with a virtual experience of this, you know, frequently part of what we're also doing in an experience like this with my clients is we are having to break out of this kind of new fourth wall that we have as this is my little box that you can see when I'm in my video. And so one of the big things that I play with really early on is, you know, what if you got really close to the camera and then got really far away from the camera? And, you know, if you, like raise your hands in the air. How often do we actually like raise our hands in the air when we're sitting down, uh, you know, at a Zoom call, um, just to get people to start to like loosen up a little bit. That's kind of one of the first things because usually um, part of the reason to do this kind of work and and to bring this into meetings or conversations or workshops that I that I host, it's it's about breaking out of the expectations of how you're supposed to be when you're at work or how you're supposed to be when you're on a Zoom call. Because that supposed to be lens is keeping us from actually really honoring the truth of our experience as an individual in the workplace. We have to kind of put on a brave face a lot of the times with our colleagues, with our manager, even if something terrible and devastating is happening. And so part of my work is, is really about helping people to, you know, expand their perception of how they, they are even experiencing their day-to-day. -day. Um, the other piece that I, I'll say with, um, with this is that it becomes much harder to create some of these pictures of uh, a typical team meeting or a, um, a particular interaction. That kind of relationship is di more difficult to mm -hmm create online and but we can unpack our individual relationships or responses to individual stimuli so frequently what i'll do is i'll ask people to create I'll ask a whole group of folks to create an image of what they think uh, an engaged employee is and it's fast and we all do it at the same time we can kind of freeze and take a look at like all the different similarities and differences with the different images people create. And then we can see 
collectively, what are some assumptions that we make around what does it mean for you to look engaged physically in, right. on a Zoom call versus, um, you know, what does it mean for someone to be disengaged, distracted, um, you know, not paying attention? And so what it, what it does is it gives us opportunities to like, unpack kind of this virtual experience while also gathering people from a, a wide a wide range of backgrounds and experiences that you know wouldn't be able to come in person to a workshop here in Seattle. That's amazing. I I wanted to ask um, about you know the steps we can we can and should be taking as individuals working at companies to heal. Um, you know, our one of the words that we like to use a lot is forgiveness, which is not often used mm. inside of an organization inside of business. Typically, you don't hear about unforgiveness and forgiveness and what that does to us. Um, but I'm wondering from your perspective, you know, notice that healing is a big part. And I'm, I'm wondering, what are your thoughts around the, the, the process and the approach that you can help introduce to help people start on that path towards healing? So this healing component with any person, whether you're a leader or not a leader, you have to start with yourself. And mm. so in any of the work that I'm doing with leaders, you know, my end game is to try to heal a workplace, but I can only do that in the hearts and minds of individuals. And so I always get leaders to start with themselves first and get more in touch with how are you actually feeling in the workplace? And it's not just how are you feeling in this moment in this workplace conversation, but it's starting to form awareness of, all of the things that you bring with you into that conversation. Now that we're at, uh, most people are working remotely where they weren't before, it is now we have all this like external baggage that is right outside the door, right? And that baggage comes into the room with you either physically or emotionally and mentally, that strain is there. And it can also include things like other big life circumstances and all of that, how that comes into play, that's going to impact the way that you interact with others, whether you like it or not. And yeah. so being a, a better leader, a leader who leads with love, uh, what I call a deliberate leader, involves being intentional and aware of what, what you're bringing into a conversation and are you actually genuinely reacting to the moment and the person in front of you, or is your reaction mostly made up of other things that have nothing to do with this person in front of you? And, and I think to piggyback on that, how vulnerable are we in the moment to be able to express that issue, right? Because right. most often what happens is if a leader is going through something, dealing with something, and they're unwilling to present that they're struggling with something outside of these, this little box that I'm in right now, I'm going to look, you're, you're going to look at me if I'm the leader in the room and say, he's mad at me. There must be something that I've done. Or I'm looking at Katie and saying, oh my gosh, she's clearly upset because of the work that I did. And, and leaders are unwilling to communicate the struggles that they're going through because they're worried about being seen as less than or as, as soft. You're ending up creating an environment where you can't really be honest with each other. And there's not an opportunity to be honest. You end up just being nice. Right. And that actually doesn't really add any value. Yeah. And I'm finding, especially in this remote environment that a lot of companies are dealing with, it's a lot harder to like check that baggage at the door mm. because 
you don't have a door and you don't leave your house and all of the problems that you have at home are, are maybe right next to you, right behind you um, as you're sitting on this Zoom call. And so, um, yeah, it's just such an interesting, interesting time we're in right now. And I think that something that you were saying, Frank, about this is that embedded in those relationships with like a leader and a, and a person that they lead is a power structure. There's um, where there's a sense of this person who leads you is, has more power than you do. Yeah. And we don't talk about these kinds of things yeah. uh, really. So that's why I like to start to bring that up because when those power dynamics come into play, it, it builds part of that barrier. And you described it when you were talking about how like, oh, I've got a maintain as a leader this sense of um you know security or this sense of like groundedness and evenness i must maintain that this whole time right uh and that mean that gives us like a fake a fake wall as a leader and then as individuals it, there's also this barrier of like well this person maybe controls my pay controls my mm -hmm. opportunity at work and so can i have an honest vulnerable conversation with them about some of the things that are coming up and causing me challenges at work doesn't always feel safe no definitely not psychological safety is is definitely broken when power dynamics are used it to to take advantage right um and that's that's definitely something that i think a lot of leaders forget the legitimate power that a title comes that a title brings along with it and they just assume that they're a, they're a person too why don't you treat me the same way and in reality if this person is signing your paychecks unless that leader is willing to take the stand first and showcase that vulnerability first. They're not going to invite people and enter and give them a chance to enter in to be that person who can also say that as well. It does ultimately come down to the leader's ability to showcase it and say, like we talked about at the very beginning, I'm choosing to behave this way so you can emulate that behavior. And I would also say that it doesn't take just one time. Mm, that's true. Right? It's not just yeah. one expression of vulnerability or of realness that has to be repeated. And it, it we have to build new habits and new yeah. skill sets that we are able to repeat over time. And so kind of getting us back to like what I was saying before about my work, my first yeah. action is to help people interrupt that automatic habitual response. And then we can start to create those new habits. We can be intentional. What are those habits I want to be creating? What is the culture I want to be creating during those in-between right. moments, those different behaviors? It's amazing. Um, I'm, I'm wanting, I'm wanting to, I, we could probably talk about this forever. Like, honestly, we're, we're so, we're so aligned and so connected on so many things. And this is really, really cool. Maggie, I'm wondering if you have any additional questions or, or thoughts before we, before we close. Yeah, I'm just one more thing. I just want to know, like, what has been your most, your proudest success story that you've seen thus far in your in your career? Yeah, you know, I think my proudest success story happened in, with a one-on-one -on -one client. So normally, I've done a lot of this work in groups, and you know, honestly, the pandemic and our virtual world has allowed me to experiment with different things, like using this work one-on-one, -on -one. and those one-on-one -on -one aha moments when a leader is like, help, I want to be uh, more intentional. And you know, this particular leader said, 
I know I go into these conversations where I am trying to, uh, you know, share an update with my team and it, it just like goes flat. And then all of a sudden it like goes in a direction I'm not expecting. And then I kind of get condescending and all these things happen. And he's like, I just don't know what's going on. And so by mm -hmm. us taking the moment to really map out that conversation, figuring out what's happening on both sides of the conversation, he realized that he was in this, that he had gone into this conversation first and foremost, not setting the right expectations. So the people who were coming into the conversation had a different set of expectations and they never got on the same page. And that was where the conflict came from. And his other big aha moment was the realization that he has been in the exact shoes that they've been in, in other scenarios. Wow. And yeah. so yeah. it was this like really great empathy moment uh, <laughs> on both sides. That's amazing self-awareness. Uh, I have one final question for you, actually. So I think, I think this, this may be helpful for some of the leaders out there. Um, how do you present this approach to leaders uh, that want a quick fix that may have even, if I'm being totally honest, rolled their eyes when they hear this takes a long time to do, right? What, what, how do you, how do you communicate this approach, this dynamic, unique approach that you are offering to teams and organizations um, to people that may be a little bit more skeptical? Well, I mean, first and foremost, I typically am going to work with leaders who actually want to make a change and they've already right. identified that their old training or their old leadership training uh, or, you know, webinars or whatever content they're consuming about leadership hasn't met the, hasn't met the mark. They don't mm. feel more confident when they go in and have a conversation with their team members. They don't feel more confident that they'll know how to meet their productivity goals or, or performance goals for their team. And so usually they feel like a little exasperated. And so they're like, Hey, Got I it. want something new. I want to try something different. Um, and you know, the results that I was describing in that one-on-one, -on -one, that was a single yeah. session. And so what I found is that if I can get people in for a single session, a single workshop, they realize, oh, I got huge aha moments right now. So that now how much more could we get if we work together for a longer period of time? I love it. I love it. So the, the folks that you're mostly working with are individuals that are starting their sort of behavior change journey. They're starting into that introspective self-awareness journey. And that's really where you're able to say, okay, if you're, if you're committed, let's invest in it. Right. Exactly. So Kate, Katie, I want to ask you, share a little bit more about what you're doing right now, where people can find you. Um, because I think people are get, really going to want to know um, about how to engage with you and, and, and even sign up to fly to Seattle. That would be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm really hoping that in 2022, I will be getting back to doing some in-person workshops that Let's will go. be open to Let's the public. Let's go. So you. stay tuned. But, um, you know, the best way to find me is at my website, mclaughlinmethod.com. And I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm posting, uh, you know, content there for everyone. I've got a blog. Uh, and then I, you know, I love being a guest on different podcasts. So I've started to collate those on my website. So you can see other kinds of kinds of conversations that I've been having with different hosts. Amazing. Katie, thank you so much for your time today for our conversation about drama, about theater, about empathy, emotional intelligence, um, and, and really what it means to, to change the way training and experiences are, are done in the workplace to actually get to real results. Maggie, thank, thank you, you for, for being our co-host as well. It's been a lot of fun. Happy to be here. Thanks Absolutely. To meet you, Katie. Yeah. So as always, 
thank you to our listeners. Uh, please be sure to check out our book. It's available on Amazon and everywhere else that you might find books. It's also called Love as a Business Strategy. And here at Love as a Business Strategy, we're posting new episodes every week. Is there a topic, a business topic you'd like for us to cover? Uh, let us know at, um, at loveasabusinessstrategy.com. Uh, reach out to us. And if you like what you heard today, please do leave us a five-star review. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, all the places. And if you know someone who might enjoy this content, please don't forget to share the love as a business strategy, pun intended. Katie, again, thank you so much for your time. Maggie, thank you again for co-hosting with me. It's been a blast. We appreciate everybody listening. Have a great day.